Let me ask you something. You think the mafia is scary? You don't know the half of it, you mook. You're listening to Eddie V's Horror Show. Hey everybody, welcome back to Eddie V's Horror Show. I'm Edward Villanova, author, YouTuber, and the host of this damn fine podcast. If you're new to the show, first of all, let me tell you, I don't always do a terrible New York Italian accent at the beginning of every show, but I usually do find some way to be a gigantic goofball, so uh, I'll be get used to that. <laughs> uh, regular listeners uh, are used to this by now, uh, I hope. But if this is your first time here, uh, this show is about anything and everything related to horror. The paranormal and stuff that's just strange or creepy in general. I also review the occasional horror movie, as well as discussing the strangest true crime stories and unsolved mysteries. Stick around if this sounds like your cup of tea. Or your cup of whiskey, as you're more likely to hear about around here. And uh, I hope you enjoy the show. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. I had a very long, unannounced, and unexpected hiatus due to, well, a couple of things. Uh, one a little more personal, and the other a little more exciting and professional. The professional thing was that, uh, I'm sorry, the personal thing was that I had a uh, family member in the hospital, and I was helping care for them during their very long recovery and I didn't really have much time left to focus on making content. I won't go into that very much. My family member is fine, fully recovered, back home, and all is well. The more exciting thing that happened is uh, that I was a guest on the Truth Tan- I'm sorry, the Truth Transistor Radio Show, and uh, that's a podcast, and it's a, it's a really great podcast about philosophy and uh, the seeking of truth and I will offer you a little disclaimer uh, it is so it's hosted by a good friend of mine his name is Rob Hendrick and uh, if you've never listened to Truth Transistor Radio Rob and I are both Christians and while I try to keep my faith separate from this podcast in that you know I don't want to you know I'm not trying to keep it a secret or anything but I don't want to get too much into that in this. This is about horror, and this is about entertainment mostly, and I know not everyone is going to want to hear about that. But uh, the subject matter of the Truth Transistor Radio podcast very frequently is about religion and uh, and the church and, and things like that. So uh, if you're not into that, it might not be for you. I will say, though, that Rob and I are both focused on the pursuit of truth and not blind following, which, sadly, people of our faith often seem to be inclined. Uh, we touch on the, sub the subject of where the church goes wrong and how big religion as an industry is choking out the truth-seeking, anti-judgment, and loving nature people of our faith are supposed to have so again you know it's up to you whether you think that's something you want to listen to or not if it is i highly recommend it uh, i thought we had a really interesting conversation i'll put a link in the show notes if you want to check that out this i think is probably going to be a pretty uh show note heavy episode so um yeah we'll we'll see we we're, we're going to be racking up a lot of things to add to the show notes by the end of the show but that is not the exciting thing that happened. While Rob and I were talking, he told me about a friend of his named Mark Rios, who is putting together a TV show about the Mafia. He was recently featured on the cover of the April 22 issue of Southwest Now magazine for making Cedar Hill his filming location for his Mafia show called A Family Thing. If you're not from Texas, you've probably never heard of Cedar Hill. Um, it's a suburb of Dallas, uh, maybe half an hour south of downtown. And uh, anyway, I'm kind of a private person. I don't like to talk too much about my personal life or family life, but I did mention on the show that I'm related to the one-time boss of the Savello mob, Joe Savello. I'm sorry, the, the Dallas mob. His name is Joe Savello. Savello was my grandmother's cousin. 
So after the show, Rob talked to Mark about me, and Mark ended up giving me a call to talk about the Dallas connection and the mob and how I was related to that. And uh, I told him that I'm a professional writer, and before I knew it, we were putting together this idea for a dinner theater show based on the Appalachian meeting, uh, the Appalachian meeting, which was an infamous meeting of all the mob bosses in the United States in 1957. I'll talk more about that later. But long story short, I just finished writing the script and the business proposal for the dinner theater play, and we're shopping around venues right now. And uh, we're going to meet again soon on potentially bringing me in as a writer for his show, a family thing. So that's pretty exciting, for me at least. That's a pretty good segue into today's topic. After spending the last couple of months doing research on the mob, it brought some interesting ideas to my depraved, horror-writing mind. The world of organized crime is fertile ground for horror stories, and I've started writing a scary story about interactions with the Mafia, and not just by getting on their bad side either. If you don't know what I'm talking about, keep listening, because we're going to get into that. This episode is all about true horror stories from the mob. But first, it wouldn't be a proper episode unless I tell you about what I'm drinking. So today, um, I, I didn't go with hard liquor. I, that's my usual fare. Uh, I'm a big whiskey guy. I like whiskey. But uh, I felt like a little vino today. So I went down and I picked myself up, uh, myself up a bottle of Bonanza. It is a California Cabernet Sauvignon. And... Uh, it smells... Very nice. I uh, full disclosure, I've I have had some of this already, but uh, just opening it now, I'll tell you what I smell is well, wine. <laughs> I'm not a wine aficionado, but um, I, I'll say that uh, it smells sort of. Um, it has it has. A dry smell. It smells like dry wine. Cabernet Sauvignon is is a dry wine, but it's not uh, it's not as dry as some. It's not like a Chianti or anything. Pour myself the classic large glass of wine, mega pint, if you will. It is dry. It's pretty dry for a Sauvignon. Um, very good. Very bold flavor. Very rich flavor. Uh, I think I'm... I mean, I have I have enjoyed it already. I think that I will enjoy it throughout the rest of this episode. So, my gosh. Sorry. I'm trying not to, not to spill this thing all over the place. All right. It's, uh, yeah, it's really good. I picked this up for about $15 at Total Wine. So, yeah, I, uh, I recommend it if you like dry wines. It's, uh, it's pretty good. Um, it has sort of a, a citrusy taste to it. It's not extremely fruity. It's, it's pretty well blended. Um, I mean... I say it doesn't taste extremely fruity, but I'm, I'm picking up like lemon, maybe a little bit of orange. Uh, I don't know. I want to say like leather. Um, yeah, leather, wood, like a light wood. Anyway, or for people that think all the wine tasting notes are bullshit, it tastes like fermented grapes. but very tasty fermented grapes. All right, <clears throat> so let's get into it. Everybody knows what the Mafia is, but unless you're inclined to go do some deep dive research, not many people know how or where the Mafia first began. So we're going to start things off with a brief history lesson on where and how the Italian Mafia came to be and how they got started in the U.S., 
If you follow the roots of the mafia back to Sicily, it first spawned out of a multi-country crime ring known as the Camorra. Now, where the Camorra first began is kind of a mystery, because criminals don't like to keep convenient records of all their wrongdoings when the law shows up. Historians' best guesses are that uh, it started in Sicily or possibly mainland Italy, or it may have actually even started somewhere around Hungary or Albania originally, since these are the, uh, the they have the highest concentration of Kamar activity, and they were known to be um, they were known to be operating earlier than in most other cities. So the Camorra have been around for a long, long time and go back to at least the 1600s, at least. Members of the Camorra say that there's a story passed down through oral tradition that they once branched off from the legendary Spanish Gardunia. Now, I say they're legendary because not only were they the scourge of Spain and later all of Europe in the Middle Ages, but because they were a legend that was never truly confirmed to exist. The Gardunia were allegedly a band of highwaymen known for robberies, kidnapping, assassinations, organizing jailbreaks, and even occasionally working as soldiers for hire. The Gardunia were sort of a boogeyman entity in that they were rumor, there were rumors about them, and there was a general paranoia that you could end up being murdered or targeted for criminal activity for having an argument with somebody who, it turned, out, who turned out to be a member. I feel like they were kind of like the Middle Ages version of Anonymous, <laughs> that, the hacker organization. Nowadays, if you find yourself in an argument with somebody online, there's about a 30% chance that they're going to eventually claim to be in Anonymous. And now that you've pissed them off, they're going to hack your computer, load it up with viruses, drain your bank account. And since they have your IP, they know where you live and you, you know, they can do anything from hiring a hitman to kill you to leaving a flaming bag of poop at your front door and ringing the bell or you know, sending a nasty letter that says, I don't like you very much. Anyway, so back then, if you were buying the last bag of millet from the open-air market and some other peasant wanted it, they might tell you that they're in the Gardunia and hand it over or else when, uh, when he gets home, he'll find his whole house missing. Anyway, <laughs> along with uh, the rumors that were flying around about the Gardunia as early as 1420, there was also a book written about them around that time, written by an alleged insider called The Gardunia Assassins, I'm sorry, The Gardunia Assassins for the Holy Inquisition. And it was about the legendary army of thieves being hired as hitmen for the church during the Spanish Inquisition. It claimed that the Gardunia were formed by a prison gang somewhere between 1412 and 1417, plotting and carrying out a harrowing prison break in 1417, and made so much of a name for themselves in the following three years through the aforementioned robberies, kidnappings, assassinations, and uh, you know, growing their numbers and generally being the scourge of Spain, that the Catholic Church went, hey, these guys seem... They're exactly the kind of folks who can help us in our quest for holifying all of Europe. And they promptly hired them to carry out the Lord's work, which in this case was murdering people who stood in the way of the Inquisition. The Church, of course, has always denied this. The legend of the Gardunia spread throughout Europe, either because of rumors, gossip, and paranoia, or because they really did exist and were growing in numbers and influence. As word of this secret band of criminals reached England, for the next couple of centuries, the crown flip-flopped its position on their existence, sometimes offering rewards for anyone who could give them information uh, and uh, putting bounties on the heads of suspected members, to other times outright denying the organization ever even existed in the first place. Anyway. As the story goes, sometime in the mid-1600s, several members of the Gardunia started to pool the wealth from their less-than-reputable business ventures, uh, become more organized, and they started buying out politicians and magistrates to look the other way on their activities. 
this group that eventually split off and became its own organization altogether was the Camorra. Now, there is uh, another criminal enterprise in Italy, and I, I believe they're worldwide now, called, uh, this is difficult to say, but I'm, I'm going to do my best, the Andrangheta, the Andrangheta, the Andrangheta. Don't drink before you try to say that. The Andrangheta. They are a mafia-like organization that also spawned out of the Camorra, but they are a, a subsection of the Camorra that split off, and they allegedly have maintained much more well-documented records on where they came from, and they've they've put a lot of importance on remembering their ancient ties. And they also espouse this, this relation to the Gardunia from back in the Middle Ages. So that very well made the case. So this group that eventually split off and became its own organization altogether from the Gardunia was the Camorra. And they started employing lower-level street thugs to carry out the higher-risk aspects of a criminal enterprise, like theft rings and extortion. And uh, they hired them as you know hitmen and bodyguards. So this created a division, or rather a distinction within the Camorra. The big guys with all the money were called the High Camorra, and the low-level thugs were just the Camorra or the low Camorra. And this is where it starts sounding like the mafia we know today. In Sicily, whether that was where the Camorra officially began or not, the high Camorra were called the capos or bosses, and the low Camorra were sometimes referred to as the soces, which directly translates to members, but in the equivalent of but it is the equivalent of an associate in the Italian-American mafia. The word soci may even be why the bosses in the American mob who immigrated from Sicily chose to use the term associates for people who are trusted with mob business but were not officially welcomed into the familia, or in other words, people who were not made men. So fast forward to the early 1800s. The Italians have done what Italians do best, and that's splice business with family. <laughs> Call it nepotism or just the natural inclination of fathers wanting sons to follow in their footsteps. Several Camorra gangs had begun, begun operating with only relatives serving as capos. Anyone who they did business with, but were not directly related, well, really by either blood or by marriage, or through being integrated in by declaring somebody a godparent, uh, if they didn't have that, that marriage tie, or that family tie, they could not be made a capo, but would be regarded as a soci or associate. These closely knit families grew in power to such an extent that they began to push other Camorra gangs out of the region, and before long, only these families with Camorra only sorry, only these family based Camorra gangs were operating in Sicily. Each gang, unsurprisingly, went by the name of the family that led it. So you ended up with gangs called the Morello family, the Pinola family, the Costello family. Is this starting to sound familiar? Eventually, these families grew in power to the point that they were operating entirely independent from the rest of the Camorra. And so they started, they started calling their part of the criminal enterprise, enterprise our thing. In Italian, that is La Cosa Nostra, a name that would go down in infamy and become synonymous with both the Italian and American mafia. By the mid-1800s, the Cosa Nostra Mafia was expanding its influence well outside of Sicily or and even mainland Italy and were active in various regions throughout Europe. By the late 1800s, most of these family gangs had branches operating in every country in Europe. Then, in 1906, a Sicilian immigrant named Salvatore Lucania came to New York with his family. At Ellis Island, his name was anglicized to Charles Luciano. And Charles was a man who would become known, feared, and revered in America for the next 60 years by his street name, 
Lucky Luciano. Dubbed by his contemporaries as the boss of bosses, Luciano was a cunning and ruthless businessman who set out to establish not only his own family, but all of the Cosa Nostra Mafia in the United States. He and those under him established a network of illegal casinos, prostitution rings, theft, extortion, money laundering, and protection rackets throughout New York, and later all across America. He was also responsible for establishing something called the Commission, which structured the Mafia family hierarchy and the territories of the U.S. It also established New York City as the seat of mob power and divided that power to the original five families of New York, each over one of the five boroughs, Queens, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Staten Island, and the Bronx. As a young man, fresh off the boat, Luciano got involved with some of the already established Jewish street gangs in New York and became close friends with two of, uh, two of note. The first was Meyer Lansky, who became his accountant and inarguably the most powerful associate in the history of the American Mafia, being regarded as a made man even though his non-Italian heritage precluded him from being bestowed that honor or I should say his non-Sicilian heritage. The other was Bugsy Siegel, who later became the driving force behind the establishment of the original Las Vegas Strip. Lucky Luciano befriended another individual of note before his rise to infamy, a man named Al Capone, a.k.a. the infamous gangster known as Scarface. The real one, not the one played by Al Pacino in the 80s. So, Capone was a fellow Italian, but not a Sicilian, which made him ineligible to become a made man in La Cosa Nostra. And not willing to settle for being a mere associate to, Lu to Luciano, the two, along with the Jewish gangster, gangster Bugsy Siegel, chose to run their businesses parallel to one another, rather than combining forces or being in direct competition with one another. Luciano proposed the formation of the National Organized Crime Network, later shortened to the National Crime Syndicate, which was almost like a United Nations for gangsters, because these gangs were not affiliated, but still wanted to be able to do business without stepping on each other's toes. They put together this network as a way to contact and meet with each other on neutral ground, where they, they could discuss who could do business in which territories, and to settle disputes with each other without having to start a gang war. The National Crime Syndicate actually still exists to this day as the TOC, which just stands for the Transnational, or I'm sorry, stands for Transnational Organized Crime. The fact that it is a syndicate or network is understood, but it's been dropped from the name. They just call it the TOC now. Lucky Luciano was the architect of the structure and order of organized crime in the United States. And though he had been dubbed the boss of bosses, this was a title Lucky came to reject, stating that he rather saw himself as the chairman of the board, a title indicative of how he viewed running the American Mafia. He saw it as a business, not as a ring of thugs who all had to pay him tribute. Though Lucky Luciano and La Cosa Nostra were making plenty of money and growing in influence, they still didn't have the type of power the Camorra had back in Italy, or even like La Cosa Nostra had in Italy. But in 1920, the United States government handed Luciano and enterprising criminals all over the nation a golden opportunity. The Volstead Act was signed into law, and with it, prohibition. When the sale and consumption of alcoholic beverages was outlawed in America, the first batch of bathtub gin started cooking the very same day. Because if there's anything heavy-handed overreaction laws in the United States have taught us, when you make something illegal, everybody wants it. And when you have an illegal substance that everyone wants, only people willing to break the law can cash in on it. And they are more than willing. The first bootlegger out of the gate was a German gangster named George Remus. Famous for talking about himself in the third person, he is the origin of the trope of old-timey criminals in old-timey cartoons and movies, saying things like, Sammy don't look out for nobody but Sammy, you hear? 
<laughs> if you watch Boardwalk Empire, George Remus made an appearance in seasons two, three, and four, played by Glenn Fleshler. He was also F. Scott Fitzgerald's inspiration for the character of Jay Gatsby in his novel, The Great Gatsby. But uh, that's kind of a rabbit trail, I guess. So anyway, uh, there was George Remus, Lucky Luciano, of course. Uh, he also jumped at the opportunity to establish a bootlegging empire. And there were several other major players. But none more prominent than Lucky's old buddy from New York, Al Capone. Now running territory in Chicago, Capone took advantage of a brand new invention, the Ford Flathead V8 engine. Vastly more powerful than any other car engines at the time. Cars with a flathead engine easily outran anything else on the road. But they were expensive. So expensive, it was cost prohibitive for law enforcement to outfit their cruisers with them. But it was no problem for the deep pockets of Capone. Having already established a thriving criminal empire in Chicago, Capone's men almost always outran the police during their rum-running operations. With a combination of their too-fast-to-catch-runner cars and the brute force they exhibited in the form of the Thompson M1921 submachine guns. You may know them better as Tommy guns. Which the police were also not equipped to combat. Standard practice in the 1920s was that police primarily carried billy clubs, with only 50% of officers carrying a firearm at all, and the standard-issue firearm was a six-shot revolver chambered in 38 Special, two speed loaders with six extra bullets each. So in the best-case scenario, a cop who gets on the trail of one of Capone's rum runners would be chasing a car that was significantly faster than his patrol car, and if he somehow managed to corner them, he had a snubby 38 with 6 bullets and 12 extra bullets to reload with, going up against a fully automatic Tommy gun, probably outfitted with a drum magazine, which either held 50 or 100 rounds. It was not a good time to be a police officer. Of course, in response to this, many police departments also began equipping officers with a 12-gauge pump-action shotgun to be kept in the trunk of police cruisers, which was only marginally better considering that they were going up against fucking Tommy guns. And eventually, some wealthier police departments did end up buying a Tommy gun or two, but that wasn't until the 1930s when Prohibition was on its last leg anyway. Uh, just an interesting side note. A fully automatic Tommy gun back in the 1920s would run you about $200. That was extremely cost prohibitive at the time. <laughs> With uh, your general 38 snub nose revolver costing about $15. It's kind of crazy to think about how inflation has uh, really changed the numbers on things. Um, it was literally two-thirds, uh, the, the Tommy gun was literally two-thirds the cost of additional patrol cars. So you could almost get a car for the price of a Tommy gun. Anyway, when 1932 rolled around and the 21st Amendment was signed into law, ending Prohibition, the Luciano family had made enough money to start both rackets and legitimate businesses in practically every major city in the country, and was, and Luciano was personally worth five million dollars, which again that doesn't sound like much today, but in 1932, that's the modern equivalent of a little more than 80 million, making him one of the richest men in the country. For comparison, the average CEO at a large corporation was only worth around a hundred thousand dollars at the time. Five million was enough to buy out every single share of stock in the Ford Motor Company, twice over. Prohibition set up Luciano and the rest of La Cosa Nostra to practically own the vast majority of criminal enterprises in the U.S. for the next 40 years. If you wanted to make money as a criminal in mob-controlled territory, which was vast, you had to pay tribute, and failing to do so meant there would be hell to pay. Enter today's topic. What happens when you piss off the mob? <laughs> so the world is full of psychopaths. This is not new information. 
And when psychopaths get involved in criminal enterprises that depend on ruthlessness and savage brutality to be taken seriously, you have a perfect storm of fucked up situations. There was a gangster by the name of Tommy Patera. Tommy is an interesting guy. He started out as an enforcer for the Bonanno crime family in New York, but he ended up traveling to Japan and living there for 10 years to become a master in multiple forms of martial arts, which earned him the nickname Tommy Karate when he returned to New York. As deadly with his bare hands as he was with a knife or gun, Tommy Rosen ranked quickly as an enforcer and a hitman for the Bonanno family. As time rolled on, one thing became clear. Tommy loved to kill. He was known as a vicious attack dog who, once given a target, could not be told to back down until the target was dead. Tommy loved making targets suffer, and he got a thrill from terrifying and torturing people. He was known to pin his victims down in the shower, stripping them, stripping himself naked as well, and then dismembering them with a knife carefully working the blade between joints and cutting tendons and other connective tissue so he could remove fingers, forearms, and legs at the knee without breaking any bones. Finally, after he'd had his fun, he would saw through the victim's neck with his knife and sever the head. He also had an unusual proclivity to play with the corpses of his victims. One of his fellow hitmen witnessed him taking a bath with the dismembered corpse of one of his victims, and this disturbed the man so much. I'm sorry. Let me say that again. This disturbed the professional murderer so much that he turned informant and committed one of the most unforgivable sins in La Cosa Nostra. He ratted out Tommy Patera to the police. That's how disturbed he was. A man who kills people for a living. He was an excellent shot with a pistol and had been known to empty his clip into people targeting only their limbs and leaving them in agony with multiple gunshot wounds, unable to stand under their own power where they would eventually die from blood loss very slowly. He was also a fan of blades and much like with his pistol, he enjoyed slicing people up with his knife without striking any vital organs or major arteries in order to prolong their suffering. When he finally decided they'd suffered enough, he would either slit their throats or saw through their necks to cut their heads off. I gotta say, cutting somebody's head off with a knife. <laughs> not a not an axe, not a sword, not a machete. Where it, it might just be one clean chop through, no. A knife where you have to saw through it. <sighs> it turns my stomach to think about but despite his clear psychopathy, Tommy continued to catch the eye of the bosses, being very useful for sending the all-too-clear message that if you fuck with the Bonanos, bad shit happens to you. And being the son of two Sicilian immigrants, Tommy was eligible to become a made man. In other words, to be allowed into the family, to become a capo, to be a boss. But on his way up the ladder... He became a capo regime, or a captain. That meant that he was put in charge of some family operations, but wasn't as high-ranking as an underboss. This brought him further into the spotlight, and when he walked into social clubs run by the Bonanno family, everybody turned to face him. Tommy loved the respect, but it was more out of fear. No one wanted to have Tommy standing behind them. He likely enjoyed being feared even more than he liked being respected. This only bolstered his confidence and made him even more unpredictable. A few months later, Tommy's wife died of a drug overdose, and he learned that she was given the over overdose by her friend Phyllis Birdie, who Tommy already had a strong dislike for. He went to her house, certainly to do what he did best, but found that she wasn't home. After staking out her place for several days and she didn't come home, Tommy told everyone under him to be on the lookout for Phyllis and to call him immediately if anyone found her. As it turns out, Phyllis wasn't home because she'd been tipped off by one of Tommy's own enforcers because the two were in a relationship. The enforcer, named Frank Ganji, had arranged for her to stay at the home of a local drug dealer who worked for the Bonanno family. 
and he routinely stayed with her there. One day, while the dealer was out doing drug dealer stuff, I guess, Frank Ganji made the mistake of answering the phone. It was Tommy Patera calling to ask the dealer if he'd seen Phyllis and was surprised to hear Frank Ganji pick up. Frank panicked, knowing that if Tommy knew he'd been hiding Phyllis from him, he'd be the next in the bathtub getting his head sawed off while Tommy's naked dick dangled in his face. So he lied and said that he'd gone to the drug dealer's house to ask him if he'd seen Phyllis, since she was a known drug user, and he found her there, passed out, and high on, on heroin. The latter was actually true. Phyllis was passed out from heroin use at the time, and Frank was almost certainly shitting bricks as Tommy sped to the house to exact his revenge on Frank's secret lover. When Tommy got there, it isn't clear if he knew Frank had been hiding her uh, or that he was in a relationship with her, but it seems like he at least suspected it, because he put Frank to the test. After murdering her in her sleep, he made Frank strip her, carry her to the bathtub, and instructed him on how to dismember her corpse, joint from joint, using only a knife. Frank, while surely in absolute fucking hell, remained stone-faced throughout the grisly process, and passed the test, likely saving his life, but almost certainly at the cost of his soul. Frank Ganji proved to be Tommy's undoing. One day, Frank was pulled over by the police for speeding, of all things, and somehow ended up agreeing to a search, although he was transporting several pounds of cocaine for the Bananos at the time. Whoops, I guess I forgot about that. <laughs> well, how'd that get there, officer? <laughs> when he was arrested, he voluntarily spilled the beans about Tommy and his sadistic methods of killing. Tommy, after all, was a serial killer who also happened to work for a major respected Cosa Nostra crime family. But he was, in fact, also a serial killer. And just like many other serial killers before him, Tommy kept trophies of his previous kills. And when the police raided his home to investigate, to investigate Frank Ganji's claims, they found trophies of his previous murders usually in the form of jewelry, linked to at least 60 people who were either reported missing or known to be deceased. This was the end of the road for Tommy Patera. He was sentenced to the death penalty, but ended up getting it reduced to life in prison, where he resides to this day as McCrary State Penitentiary in Kentucky. Our next mafia psychopath was a made man by the name of Tony Spolotro. If you've seen the movie Casino... Joe Pesci's character, Nicky Santoro, was based on uh, Tony Spilotro. As bloody and brutal as Pesci's character was in that movie, they actually cleaned up a few scenes in the movie because the real events were actually too extreme for Hollywood. And in an, in an industry that is known for overstating and sensationalization, to think the real version was worse than the Hollywood version is alarming, to say the least. There's a scene in Casino where Nicky Santoro puts a man's head in a vice and cranks it down as a method of torture and interrogation. Now, I've actually mentioned this seen before in the medieval torture episode this was uh, there was a medieval torture device called the head crusher that was basically this exactly and the real life tony spilotro was inspired by that device so you may ask how did they nerf the scene in casino then when it was already a fairly difficult to watch scene as it is the main difference is how the victim's head was situated in the device so, in Casino, Nicky Santoro put the victim's head in the vice to be crushed from the sides. In real life, Tony Spilotro crushed a man's head from top to bottom, with the edges of the vice situated on his lower jaw and the top of his head. Why is this worse? Well, <laughs> when you crush someone's head from the sides, the pressure increases until the skull fractures. Once the intracranial space is breached, that's pretty much it. It's over. They're gonzo. But if the head is crushed top to bottom... Well, let me just read you this brief description about the head crusher from, from Wikipedia. 
This metal device featured a plate that sat below the victim's jaw, which was connected to a frame at the top at the head cap. As the torturer slowly twisted the handle, the gap between the head cap and the plate decreased, crushing the skull, including the teeth, mandible, and facial bones, and ultimately inducing death. Even if the torturer stopped before death, permanent damage to the facial facial muscle, muscles and structure would have occurred. The victim's head would slowly be crushed, killing the victim, but not before the victim's jaw had been crushed, their eyes extruded from their sockets, and to aggravate the pain, the torture, the torture master would sometimes amuse himself by hitting the metal cap with a small hammer. Some variations had a receptacle in front to catch the eyeballs of the victim when they popped out. So, in the movie, Joe Pesci jokes about the victim's eye popping out, but that's one of the real-life details of the torture and execution that the scene was based on. The victim's eye really did pop out. The real Tony Spilotro and his brother Michael with the same ends as their characters did in the movie. They were beaten nearly to death with, base- with baseball bats and then buried alive. When Spilotro's body was pulled from the cornfield where he was buried... The coroner performed an autopsy and determined that that blunt force trauma was not the cause of death, but rather it was asphyxiation and dirt in the lungs. His bones had been badly broken, making it impossible to dig his way out. And being buried without a coffin, he died from sucking dirt into his lungs, trying desperately to breathe. A disturbing death in itself. But at the same time, It's kind of hard to feel bad for the guy who was inspired by medieval torture methods to crush a guy's head in a vice until his eyeball popped out. Call me unforgiving. (laughs) Alright. So our next mafia horror story is not only about a man, but also the group he was in charge of. Now during my brief history lesson about how the mafia was established in America... We talked about Lucky Luciano and how he formed the organization known as the National Crime Syndicate. Two of his contemporaries, Bugsy Siegel and Meyer Lansky, were Jewish gangsters, and before they hit the big time with Siegel building casinos and Lansky cooking the books for Lucky Luciano, they were two of the big names in the the most notorious mafia hit squad in history. They were extremely brutal and exacting, and they made even the toughest and highest-ranking mafiosos quake in their floor shines. This was the intra-mafia organization that came to be known as Murder Incorporated. These Jewish gangsters, man, they were some hardcore motherfuckers. At least in the early days of Murder, of murder Incorporated, they made, up, they made up the majority of it. Bugsy Siegel and Meyer Lansky... Martin Goldstein, they were all Jewish. Abe Rells, who they called Kid Twist, uh, he was Jewish. Harry Strauss, Ali Tenenbaum, who they called TikTok Tenenbaum, Seymour Magoon, Jacob Shapiro, they were all Jewish gangsters. And even the boss of Murder Incorporated at first uh, was Louis Buckalter by himself, or Lepke Buckalter. Uh, yeah, he was Jewish. And it was Lucky Luciano who established Murder Incorporated, the mafia boss of bosses, in an organization that prizes Sicilian heritage so highly that even Al Capone, who was Italian but not Sicilian, wasn't allowed in. That says something about these Jewish gangsters. Of course, having grown up with Lansky and Siegel and associating with the Jewish gangs as as a young man... Lucky Luciano knew how brutal they could be. So the fact that he performed such a crucial um, service to the mob, and not only had it led, but primarily composed of Jewish gangsters, says a lot. He trusted them completely. Of course, there were Sicilian mobsters who were in Murder Incorporated, too. Louis Capone, for example, no relation to Al Capone. Frank Abandondo, who they called Dasher, and Harry Malone, I'm sorry, Harry Mayone, who they called Happy. (laughs) How's that for a killer? What a fucking thug life name, Happy. 
Shit, man, you gotta watch out for Happy. He'll slit your throat with a smile on his face. And another name that will go down in mob history, Albert Anastasia, whose brutality and ruthlessness saw him quickly ascend the ranks, where he not only led Murder Incorporated alongside Lepke Buckalter, but even afforded him his own family when he killed Mafia boss Vincent Mangano and his brother, Anastasia was the underboss of the Mangano family at the time, which put him in charge when Mangano died. And the Mangano family became the Anastasia family. Reporting directly to Lucky Luciano, and, the, and under the leadership of Lepke Buckalter and Albert Anastasia, Murder Incorporated was a feared and respected entity within La Cosa Nostra. They mainly operated in New York, but they accepted murder contracts from mob families all over North America, known for killing people in the most violent and torturous ways. Everyone was terrified of incurring the wrath of Murder Incorporated. Lepke Buckalter once drove an ice pick through a man's tongue and into a table in order to pin him there, then gouged his eyes out with his bare hands. He was left to die from blood loss. Albert Anastasia once removed someone's eyelids with a straight razor so they could be forced to watch their own torture. People who turned informant were hacked to pieces, literally to pieces, with ice picks and meat cleavers. Goldstein and Strauss lit a man named Irving Feinstein on fire in a vacant lot and watched him burn alive. Kid Twist had a calling card. His favorite way to finish off victims was to drive ice picks into their ears until they pierced their brains. When they used guns, victims were often shot 10, 20, 30 times. And those were the lucky ones. Shock and horror were the method of Murder Incorporated. But Albert Anastasia's recklessness was getting worse. Maybe he was going mad with power, maybe the life of crime and murder was getting to him, or maybe he was never sane and, after some success, was getting too comfortable and letting his crazy show. But one way or another, he was becoming more and more unhinged. Mob bosses would sick Murder Incorporated on snitches, backstabbers, people who got greedy or power-hungry, but always criminals, thugs, gangs that refused to pay tribute, and other Cosa Nostra members who fucked up. But Anastasio started attacking civilians who got in his way or even just pissed him off. This was not only bad for moral reasons, but also because at the time, and honestly, probably even nowadays to a certain extent, law enforcement was willing to look the other way when gangsters killed gangsters. But when innocent people started getting murdered, especially in such brutal ways that Murder Incorporated was known for, the police weren't as willing to shrug it off. Eventually, an argument with a candy store owner named Joe Rosen was the downfall of Murder Incorporated. Rosen was well-known and liked in the community, and after an argument with Anastasia and Buckalter, Rosen was marked for death. Under orders from the two heads of Murder Incorporated, hitmen Harry Strauss and TikTok Tannenbaum walked into Rosen's candy store, trashed it, and then beat Rosen before shooting him 17 times, leaving his battered body literally shot to pieces on the floor of his candy shop. Newspaper articles from the time are sparse on information, and I couldn't tell if the store was open or not at the time, how fucked up would it be if it was open? Like, what if there were kids in there? It was a fucking candy shop. Needless to say, there is a public outcry to find Rosen's murderers, and even Lucky Luciano's deep pockets couldn't produce enough bribe money for the police and the district attorney to look the other way. An intensive investigation was launched, and several members of Murder Incorporated were already well-known to the NYPD. It was just a matter of time before arrests were made and the trials began. Trials make organized crime figures nervous. If someone is going to roll over on higher-ups to save their own skin, there's a good chance it's going to happen during a trial. So during these trials, 
the members of Murder Incorporated were taken out one by one, mostly by their comrades. Those who were convicted were sent to the electric chair. Others were murdered before they had a chance to stand trial. Bugsy Siegel was one of the few that was found not guilty since the DA wasn't able to link him directly to uh, any of the murders, although later his involvement was made known. Uh, he went on to open a shit ton of casinos in Las Vegas, like we talked about earlier, and uh, those casinos would eventually establish the original Vegas Strip. But he was eventually mowed down with a Tommy gun in his office in Las Vegas a couple of years later. The other members of Murder Incorporated met their fates much sooner, including their leaders, Lepke Buckalter and Albert Anastasia. Buckalter was found guilty and died in the electric chair. He, to this day, remains the only high-ranking mob boss who has been killed by corporal punishment. Anastasia, it would seem, had found the right people to pay off, or was bought out of trouble by Lucky Luciano once so many Murder Incorporated members had already been executed and the anger over Ro the Rosen murder had died down. But for one reason or another, the heat seemed to be off of Albert Anastasia. Unfortunately for him, his previous power plays to take over the Magnano crime family came back to bite him in the ass. Vito Genovese, then underboss of what had become the Anastasia crime family, had him gunned down by two hitmen while he was getting a shave at the Sheraton Barber Shop in New York. Anastasia had actually gotten out of the chair and advanced on the hitmen after they opened fire, and it took ten rounds from their forty-fives to finally put him down. Anastasia had been known as the Lord High Executioner in Murder Incorporated, but in his final moments, he lived up to another nickname the mob had given him. The Monster. With the death of Buckalter and Anastasia, Murder Incorporated was no more. It's, it's speculated that Lucky Luciano established a second, much cleaner, and more covert version of Murder Incorporated that's still operating to this day. But of course, no one can say for sure. Moving on to our next murderer... No list of mob horror stories would be complete without mentioning one of the most notorious hitmen of all time, or at least in recent time, fairly recent time. <laughs> We're fast-forwarding now to the 1970s and 80s to talk about a man named Richard Kuklinski. Now, Kuklinski is believed to have killed somewhere between 100 and 250 people for the Gambino crime family, earning him the nickname you probably know him by, the Iceman. Now, if you've seen the 2012 movie, The Iceman, first of all, it's a great movie, and I recommend it if you like crime dramas. Kuklinski is played masterfully by Michael Shannon, who doesn't look much like the real-life Richard Kuklinski, but he got that voice down spot on. <laughs> I was impressed. Anyway, if you've only seen the 2012 movie uh, The Iceman and know nothing else, you could say that Kuklinski wasn't really a bad guy but someone who ended up compromising his morals because of who he worked for. A man who did what he did, however unsavory, because he wanted to afford the best life for his family that he could. Someone who, despite being a contract killer for a mob family, had a relatively high moral fiber, making a vow he considered unbreakable under any circumstances to never hurt women or children. Well, I'm here to tell you folks, the Richard Kuklinski portrayed in that movie is nothing like the real guy. In 1991, Kuklinski was interviewed for an HBO documentary about him, which was the source material for a lot of the things that were in the movie, and it paints a much different picture of him. Actually, let me rephrase that. Kuklinski painted a much different picture of himself than the relatable one portrayed in the film. Kuklinski was unquestionably a psychopath who enjoyed killing. It wasn't just something he did because he had to in order to feed his family, but it tortured him constantly. No, 
No, it did not. Kuklinski made it very clear that not only was he remorseless for his kills, but he was proud of them. The moral code they made a point about in the film was based on a statement he made in, in the interview that he never hurt a child and that he probably wouldn't have hurt a woman, although he didn't seem very strong on that point. Kuklinski loved to experiment with different methods of killing. Of course, there were plenty of people he shot, but he also killed, plenty, he also killed people with knives, poison, and his bare hands. He kept a crossbow in his car for a while because he was curious about how effective it would be, waiting for an opportunity to use it. One day, apparently because he got tired of waiting for a legitimate reason to use it, when a random passerby asked him for directions, he reached over, grabbed the crossbow, and shot him through the head with it for no other reason than that he wanted to. Kuklinski also appears to be a compulsive liar. A fellow mafia assassin named Robert Prongay made it into the film, played by Chris Evans, Prange was allegedly ex-special forces with an expert and was an expert in explosives and poison. He drove a Mr. Softy ice cream truck, which earned him the nickname Mr. Softy. In the movie, the name was changed to Mr. Freezy because Mr. Softy is a trademark name for one, and two, because no assassin in their right mind would accept the nickname Mr. Softy. I guess if he ran a ramen restaurant, he would have been called Mr. Limp Noodle. Anyway, the character of Robert Prange is, again, based on the 1991 HBO interview with Kuklinski. Kuklinski claims Prange is the one who taught him about poisons, and also who taught him to freeze the bodies of his victims for a long period of time to confuse the coroner on the approximate time and date of death. This was also partially the reason for him being nicknamed the Iceman. But the reason I say that he was a compulsive liar is because this story about Robert Prange is complete and utter horseshit. Kuklinski said he worked for all the crime families in New York and New Jersey and was well-known and often used. He was also allegedly part of the crew at the Gemini at the Gemini Lounge, which we're going to get into in a minute. So this guy should have been recognizable to lots of mob-connected people. But the interesting thing is, nobody else from that era ever mentioned him. Nobody seems to know anything about Robert Prongay. The only thing that anyone was able to dig up about anyone by that name was that one guy named Robert Prongay was found shot to death inside an ice cream truck, and the police later discovered that his family had been murdered when somebody blew up his house. The bomb may or may not have been planted by Prange himself. This was a newspaper article, but there was no mob connection ever established. It was just a strange, unsolved murder. It's speculated that Kuklinski probably read the article and imagined this scenario where he was a mob enforcer too, and oh yeah, I actually worked with him, and he showed me how to do all this stuff, and oh yeah, I'm the guy who killed him too, by the way. But in reality, all signs point to Kuklinski making the whole Robert Prange story up. Kuklinski worked for Gambino family underboss Roy DeMeo, who was played by Ray Liotta in the film adaptation. Again, great job by Ray Liotta. Rest in peace, buddy. You will be missed. But the real Roy DeMeo was a fellow psychopath who almost deserves his own entry in today's episode. He ran the Gemini Lounge, which was a nightclub that also served as a backdoor for mafia operations. DeMeo invented a streamlined method for getting rid of bodies. They would invite someone who needed killing to the club, usher them into the back room, supposedly for a meeting, wrap a towel around their head, and shoot them to minimize the blood spatter. Then several of DeMeo's men would take the body apart on a sort of disassembly line and place the severed appendages into trash bags for immediate disposal. It was a process later imitated by other mob enforcers. They called it the Gemini Method. The funny thing is, for all their cleverness, all they did with the trash bags after that was to pitch them in the dumpster outside. 
and this worked fine until a homeless man went dumpster diving and looking for something to eat and found the devil's barbecue. Anyway, Kuklinski was often part of this disassembly line, but that wasn't the only way they disposed of bodies at the Gemini Lounge. When police eventually raided the nightclub, they called its back rooms a house of horrors, with bodies being not only disposed of in various methods, but also being stored, presumably to experiment with the disposal methods of later on. If I was just going to take a guess, I'd say that Kuklinski learned to freeze bodies from DeMeo, not from this made-up version of Robert Prange. Kuklinski also claimed to have killed DeMeo, but investigators who were assigned to the case determined DeMeo had been murdered by his own crew. These weren't the only questionable claims made by Kuklinski. In a later interview ten years later, in 2001, he also claimed to have killed Jimmy Hoffa and told a rather unlikely story about why his body was never found, stating that it was originally buried in a drum in, New Jer in a New Jersey landfill, then disinterred and put in the trunk of a car and driven to a scrapyard where it was crushed into a, into a cube, along with several other cars, and shipped off to Japan as scrap metal to be melted down and used to make new cars. This claim was apparently wild enough to have not been included in the movie. For all, this, for all of his self-aggrandizing lies, Kuklinski was verifiably a very prolific murderer. And by the time of his arrest, he'd killed with guns, knives, grenades, the aforementioned crossbow, uh, a bomb attached to an RC car, which is honestly kind of funny if you discount the whole murder part, and several types of poison, including a cyanide in a nasal spray bottle that delivered a lethal dose when sprayed into the victim's face. Apparently pretty damn quick, too. Kuklinski said the cyanide spray was his favorite. Now, like I said before, his nickname was partially due to his practice of freezing corpses for a long time to make it appear that victims had died more recently. However, this was ultimately the downfall of the Iceman. One victim named Louis Mazgay was frozen solid for 15 months before Kuklinski dumped him in the park. The coroner admitted that this would probably have fooled him, and that he never would have suspected the body had ever been frozen, and that the victim was killed much more recently. But Kuklinski finally fucked up, because he left the body in a place where it was found far too quickly, and when the coroner cut him open, oopsie-daisy, he was still frozen inside. Given that it was a warm summer's day, the coroner went, hmm, and determined that strange things were indeed afoot at the Circle K. Knowing that the apparent time of death could not be determined by the state of decay, police traced Mazgay's last known whereabouts to, well, what do you know, a meeting with Richard Kuklinski about bootleg videotapes. Mazgay's family confirmed that he was still wearing the same clothes as the day he disappeared, which was also the day he met with Kuklinski. Once he was investigated directly, police were able to find, to find links to many other unsolved murders in both New York and New Jersey. Kuklinski died a batshit psycho in 2006 despite the film claiming that a foul play was suspected because he was due to testify against a mob boss. As we all know, Hollywood is just a bunch of damn liars. Kuklinski actually died of a heart attack related to his pre-existing heart disease, phlebitis, and Kawasaki disease, which is a disease that causes inflammation in the circulatory system. He was also 70, obese, and had been laying off greasy-ass prison food for the last 20 years. So unless heart disease itself is on the mob payroll, it sounds like it was probably natural causes to me. And that brings us to the end of this epic episode about mafia murderers and mob horror stories. Honestly, there's so much sadism and shocking violence and gore in gangland America, this could be an entire series. It was hard to resist the temptation to just keep rolling into the next thing and the next thing and another and another, but this episode is plenty long enough as it is. 
especially for a solo episode. I may revisit this topic at some point if this ends up being a popular episode or if I have Mark on the show because there is plenty of material to make more episodes out of. And speaking of Mark, let me tell you a little bit more about what we have going on. I finished writing the script for for the dinner theater play based on the Appalachian meeting, or Appalachian meeting, however you say that, which, again, was a famous meeting of the La Costa Nostra Capos in Appalachian, New York. It was also a hotly contested power play by the then-new boss, Vito Genovese, who was threatening and murdering his way to the top. He wanted to be the boss of bosses. He wanted to be the head of all Cosa Nostra crime families in America. In other words, he wanted to be Lucky Luciano. Luciano had been deported instead of uh, serving a prison term, and no one was really sure if he was ever coming back to the U.S. There was a lot of drama going on between the families. It was a really tense time, and there was a lot of mistrust and backstabbing, and so we figured it would make for great theater. (laughs) So I wrote the script, and Mark and I are shopping it around at venues in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in Texas right now. But who knows, if it takes off, maybe it'll be coming to a dinner theater venue near you in the near future. Who knows? The show is called Mafia Exposed, based on the true events of the Appalachian meeting. I'll announce it more as things develop. I'm also meeting with Mark at his studio next week uh, to start writing for his show, A Family Thing. The pilot is out right now on Amazon Prime, and if things go well, it'll be coming to... Uh, your favorite streaming service sometime in 2023. Now, it's the beginning of Spooky Month, my favorite time of the year, and all through the month of October, I have a series of minisodes planned that are just going to be a bunch of short, spooky things from history and such, and then I'll, I'll resume putting out full episodes in November. I have a lot of cool things coming up, a lot of new guests planned, and Things like that. So stay tuned for more scary stuff. All right, folks. I'll see you next time. And until then, stay creepy. Thanks for listening. To read some of my stories, see my artwork, and find links to my videos and podcasts, visit my website at edwardvillanova.com. If there's a topic you'd like to hear about, a work of horror you'd like to hear reviewed, or to submit a true account or short horror story, send me a message at edwardvillanova.com contact or on the Eddie V's Horror Show Facebook page. To shop horror fan merch designed by yours truly, go to edwardvillanova.com and click on the shop link. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to hear more, please consider rating and reviewing my podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. The positive, high-star reviews really help me out. If you really like what you're hearing here, please consider giving to my Patreon. The range of benefits include everything from personalized content to free merch and so much more. Become a patron today at patreon.com slash edwardvillanova. Lastly, you can follow me on Twitter at edwardvillanova.